Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're still in this season of the fire under the tower. We started it back on Ash Wednesday, you remember. And many of you have been praying every day about this revival and for this revival. Many of you may not have been praying every day, but throughout this whole season, there have been times when you spent in prayer. Some of our people have seen God moving. And for some people, that movement of God has uh, produced a great amount of joy and excitement. For others, that movement of God has produced uh, a lot of pain and struggle. But in either case, God is moving and he is doing something in a lot of people in our church. And I hope that he is doing something in your own life. I hope that you see him doing something. I can tell you without reservation that God wants to do something in your life during this season of revival. I am convinced of that. And whether or not he does something will depend largely upon uh, whether you and I allow him to do so. God does not force revival. On a people. God brings revival where he is welcomed into the presence of people. And I believe that God wants to do something in your life. I want to remind you again of what real revival is. We've gone through this every single time that I've preached during this season. Real revival is the visible moving of God among a specific group of people in a specific place over an indefinite period of time, changing the lives of those people. In that definition, there are two essentials that are so, so important. One is that uh, if we haven't seen the visible movement of God, then there's been no revival. But even if you see the visible movement of God, if there's not a change in you and me, God's people, then there's been no revival. But if you see the visible moving of God, and if on top of that you experience a change in your life uh, that moves you Godward, then that's a pretty good sign. Those two things together are pretty good signs that real revival is happening. Now, here's a question that I want us to to focus on this morning. The question is this. What do people who are experiencing revival look like? When we experience revival, when we experience the fire of revival, what do those people do? And so that's the title of this message today. What People on fire do. What do they do? 
Because I want to know what they do. I, I want to know what people on fire look like. I want to know what they act like because that'll give me some indication of of how I ought to be acting and what I ought to look like if truly revival fire has fallen upon me and if revival fire has fallen upon you. Well, where do we go to answer that question? Well, my answer is that you go to the scriptures and you find a scripture text that describes people truly experiencing revival. And you find that text and you look into it and you research it and you read over it and meditate on it and study it to try to find out, okay, these people are on fire. They're experiencing revival. What does this uh, revival make them look like? What are they doing in the middle of this revival? Well, one of the key revivals in all of history is found in the book of Acts chapter number 2. One of the greatest revivals that ever took place in the history of humanity occurred in Acts chapter 2. So I want you to look with me to Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse number 1. Now, we're about to see um, uh, uh, some events that occurred on a day called Pentecost. Pentecost is a Greek compound word that literally means 50 days. Pentecost was a day that occurred 50 days after the Passover. So this is 50 days after the Passover. Jesus has already risen from the dead. And here's what we find. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, they were about 120 disciples. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, and it filled the house, the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. Every passage we've read during this season had something to do with fire. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound... A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Serene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them. They said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Joel said, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. 
Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What do people on fire do? In this passage of scripture, we are given a glimpse, a description of some people who were truly on fire. They were experiencing the fires of revival. And we can look at their lives and we can look at what they were doing and we can look at what happened to them and pretty well uh, uh, assume, justly so, that the things that happened to them can be also descriptive of us when we are experiencing the fires of revival. I want to share with you some of the characteristics that they held that can also be true of us and, and should be true of us if we are experiencing the kind of revival that I believe God wants to bring down upon us. The first thing that I want you to note is this. People on fire expect God to do something. They expect God to do something. They come to church expecting God to act. They wake up in the morning expecting God to move. They pray at night expecting God to move in their midst as a response to their prayers. Let me ask you this question. Did you come to church this morning expecting God to do something? Did you come expecting God to move? People who are on fire expect God to move. Now, how, how do you know that from this passage? Well, here you have about 120 disciples. Uh, Acts chapter 1 tells us that uh, after Jesus was crucified and resurrection, resurrection, and he spent a little more than 40 days with the disciples, the Bible says that he ascended back to the Father. But he told them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said, now, uh, you will be witnesses unto me in Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. But then he said this, he says, but tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Listen, these folks weren't from Jerusalem. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They weren't natives of Jerusalem. Most of these people were natives of Galilee, two or three hours north of Jerusalem. They weren't at home. Uh, they, were, they were a long ways from home in Jerusalem, and Jesus said, I want you to stay here until you are endued with power from on high. Why would they stay in Jerusalem when they didn't live in Jerusalem? Why would they stay in Jerusalem when they weren't natives of Jerusalem? Here's why. Because they expected God to do something. That's why. They stayed in Jerusalem because they knew, based upon the word of Jesus, that God was about to do something, and he was going to do it right there in Jerusalem where they were. People who are on fire expect God to do something. They wake up 
And on Sunday morning, they can't wait to get to the worship house, to the meeting house, because they believe from the depths of their heart that God is going to do something. I'll tell you, and when we, when we were even thinking about this season of revival back in January and then into early February, I believed that God was going to do something in this season of revival. Did you believe and do you still believe that God wants to do something in this church and that He wants to do something in your family and that He wants to do something in you? Do you believe it? These people believed it. How do you know? Because they stayed in Jerusalem. Even though it was not where they lived, even though it was not where they were originally from, they stayed there because they believed God was going to do something. Now, the second characteristic about people on fire that we can glean from this this story in Acts chapter 2 is this. Not only did they believe that God was going to do something, not only were they expectant, of God doing something, but second, people on fire make themselves available to be used by God. They make themselves available. They had no idea what was about to happen. They just knew that God was going to do something. They didn't know what shape it was going to take. They didn't know what God was going to say. They didn't know how he was going to do it, but they believed God was going to do something, and they assembled in the upper room, Acts chapter 1 says. And you know what they were doing? They were praying. They were praying. 120 people. Uh, about the number of people, I don't know exactly how many people are here this morning. I would guess somewhere in the neighborhood of 120, 130. But if you can imagine this, in an upper room for a number of days, there was a group of people about this size who were assembled away from home, praying, expecting God to do something. There were men there. There were women there. I don't know how many children may have been there, but there were certainly, it was a co-ed group of people, men and women, most of whom had been with Jesus for the bulk of three years. And they were assembled there, expecting God to do something. And and by being there, they made themselves available to be used of God. You know what one of the most essential parts of experiencing revival is? You have to make yourself available to be used of God. You hoist your sails. You see, revival is kind of like the wind. In fact, it's interesting that in both the Old Testament and the New, in the Old Testament Hebrew language and in the New Testament Greek language, the, the same words that are translated wind are translated spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, literally, in those languages, is the holy wind of God. And you and I are kind of like sailboats out on the sea of life. And and what revival is about is us hoisting our sails upward so that we can be used and moved and and, uh, compelled by the holy wind that is the Holy Spirit of God. The problem that I have too often in my life, I hate to admit it, is I'm not willing to hoist my sails. I'm not willing to throw them up so that I could go wherever it is that God wants me to go. I tend to want to leave my sails down and do the paddling myself. Folks, you just can't go as far with a boat oar as you can with the sails hoisted and God's Spirit moving. 
What God wants us to do is to be expecting Him to do something. He wants us to make ourselves available for Him to do something by hoisting our lives high and allowing Him to move in us. Are you available for God to use? Now that's kind of a tricky thing. Because the wind of God may take you in places that are deep that are treacherous, that are stormy. But I will tell you this, that no matter how stormy the path God may lead you, it is the path that is perfect for you. God will not lead you astray. People on fire expect God to do something. They come anticipating. People on fire make themselves available to be used by God. Third, people on fire accomplish amazing feats. In fact, people on fire accomplish things that they could not possibly accomplish in their own power. Here's what happened to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. They were all uh, in this upper room, about 120 of them, about the number that's here. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit from heaven fell upon them. And as the Holy Spirit fell upon them, they stepped out of that room and they began to proclaim God's message. Now, to get an idea of what was going on in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost was a week-long celebration. It was a Jewish celebration. And people who were Jewish from all over the world on Pentecost would come home to Jerusalem. It was almost like, uh, I think the closest thing we could compare it to would be Christmas, where everybody comes home. Everybody, the family, gathers around and, and we, we eat together and we fellowship together and we find out how all the other family members have been doing uh, since we saw them the last time and we exchange gifts. Pentecost was a great holiday for the Jewish people. And some scholars estimate that on this particular day in Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost, there were anywhere from 200,000 to 500,000 Jewish people assembled in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is not a great big city, but on this particular uh, instance, uh, there were literally hundreds of thousands of people there, even at the lowest estimates. And so Peter comes out and he is, he is immediately confronted with Jewish people from all over the world who speak uh, a whole myriad of different languages. Not all the Jews spoke Hebrew. Not all of them spoke Aramaic. Not all of them spoke Greek. Some of them spoke uh, some Mesopotamian dialect. Others spoke Egyptian. And they were all there in Jerusalem. Multilingual crowd. How do you communicate to people? Can you imagine this? If I were to stand up and the only thing I know is redneck English. And, and, and if in this crowd there are Russians and there are French and there are Spanish and there are Latinos and there are uh, Portuguese and there are Chinese and there are Japanese all in this group. And I want to stand up and I want to preach in a way that everybody understands. How do I do that? Because all those people of those different languages are certainly not going to understand my redneck English. A lot of people who speak English don't understand my redneck English. 
So what happens? That was the situation that faced Peter. He stood up, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and, and he just did the only thing he knew to do. He was preaching in his own language, which was probably Aramaic. But as he was preaching, something happened between the acceleration of sound waves from his mouth and, and the, uh, the reception of those same sound waves into the ears of the people who were there. God did something that Peter was not able to do. And that was God in midair translated what Peter was saying so that everybody who was there, the Russians, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Spanish, the French, all of those heard him speaking in their native language. It was a miracle of communication. Some people say that Peter got up and that he was speaking in, in all these languages. That wasn't what happened. He spoke in his own language, but the people heard him in their native language. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, there are two different words that are translated languages or tongues. One word is the Greek word glossolalia, from which we get our word glossary. And it means languages. But there's another word also in Acts chapter 2, not glossolalia, but dialectos, which, from which we get our word dialect. When the people were hearing Peter and the apostles preach, not only did they hear him in their own language, they heard their own language in their own dialect. And so Peter gets up and he's preaching in Aramaic and there's some guy from North Georgia there, just hypothetically speaking, some guy from North Georgia there who only speaks redneck English and what he hears Peter saying is, you all need to get saved. That guy with, who speaks redneck English heard Peter not just in English, but he heard him in his own dialect. It was that precise what God did. Peter could not have done that. The other disciples, they could not have done that. It was humanly impossible. Do you understand that God is going to do something in your life and he wants to do something through your life that is humanly impossible? You couldn't do it if you tried to buy a way to do it. It's got to be that way. You know why? Because if you could do it, you'd take credit for it. And so would I. We so much love to take credit for things. Oh, we love to take credit for fixing this and repairing that and, and inventing the other. Listen, God, God sends revival in ways that only he gets the credit and the praise and the glory. That's the way it works. That is the purpose for which you and I were created, not to shine the spotlight on ourselves, but to deflect that spotlight right back up to him. And when we accomplish major feats in, in revival, it is his doing. It is not our doing. So people on fire expect God to do something. Are you expecting him to do something? People on fire make themselves available to be used by God. Are you available unconditionally to God? People on fire accomplish amazing feats they could not accomplish on their own. Number four, people on fire promote unity and care about other people. I didn't read 
later in that chapter, beginning with verse 42, but I want to read it now. It's not going to be on the screen, so you'll need to listen closely. This is still in the same chapter, Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. It says this, says they, that's these 120 people plus the, the thousands of people who were saved on that day, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That's those amazing feats. And then verse 44, all the believers... Get this, folks. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. I skipped verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now let me just summarize that for you. These people were expecting God to work and he did. These people were making themselves available for God to work and he did. These people were accomplishing great, great and amazing feats that only God could do. But these people also at the end of the day, they came together And they looked at each other and they said, I want to sit down at the table with you. I want to talk with you. I want to fellowship with you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you look like. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I want to be together with you and I want to love you and I want to be loved by you. And I want to find out, do you need anything? Because if I can, I want to see if I can provide what you need. And if I can, I'm going to try to find somebody who can provide what you need. And we're going to help each other. And we're going to love each other. That's what people on fire do. My prayer for our church, for our children, for our students, for our senior adults, for our median adults, for our church, is that we experience revival. And that one of the products of that revival will be that we are united in heart and mind and attitude and purpose to serve God. People on fire promote unity and they care about other people. I'm afraid that in our day, I'm afraid in our day that one of the things Jesus said on one occasion, has turned out not to be true. I'm afraid. Here's what he said. He said this to his disciples back before he was crucified. He says, by this shall all people know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. I'm afraid that in our world, when the unchurched world looks at the Christian community in our world today, they see a fragmented and fighting bunch of people. And so it leads me to be concerned about whether what Jesus said he wanted has turned out to be the truth. Can people look at us and tell 
that we've been with the Lord. Can people look at us by the way we treat each other and know that by our love for each other, we have an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Finally, people who are on fire lead lost persons to Christ. People who are on fire lead lost persons to Christ. This is one of the, this is one of the, the fervent things that, that uh, we've got to recapture. We've got to recapture. I'm not going to do this because I wouldn't want anybody doing it to me, but I, I, I often wonder what it would be like if on a Sunday morning, without notice, because if I gave you notice I was going to do this, you folks wouldn't come. But I wonder what it would be like if on a given Sunday without warning, we started here on the front pew and one by one went all the way back up in the balcony and then one by one all the way back up to the front on this side. And we said, we asked this question. Who have you led to Christ in the past year? Now you know why I said that if I gave you notice, many of you, a strong majority of you, would go either to Southcrest or Crossroads or Ramah or somewhere like that. Because you know they're probably not going to ask you that stuff. Isn't that right? Who have you led to Christ in the last year? Can you produce a name? Do you know what happened in Acts chapter 2? Let me just read this. This is uh, beginning with verse 37. Peter has just gotten up and preached, and the people have miraculously heard his sermon in their own language and dialect. And here's, here's the aftermath of it. Verse 37, when the people heard this message, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And then listen to verse 41. Are are you listening? Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about, hear this, about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. Did you hear that? Do you realize that if Peter got up at the end of that day and he called every one of these 120 people who were in the upper room when that day started, if he called all of them up at the end of the day and said, all right, who have you led to Christ in the past year? They wouldn't have to go back a year. They'd just go back about, oh, probably... 16, 18 hours maybe. And it would take them all night and all day 
to go through the list of names of the people that they had a part in leading to Christ on that day. Do you really believe that people need a relationship with Jesus Christ to go to heaven? Do you believe it? And if you believe it, are you leading lost people to Jesus? Now, I realize that some people are better at that than others. I realize that. Some people are not as gifted in that as others. But let me tell you something. Regardless of your gifting, every single person who is saved has a responsibility to lead others to Christ. Every person. Whether you have the gift of gab or not, you are called by the Lord to witness to your people at school, to your people at work, to your family, to your neighbors, to the people you fellowship with, your good friends, you and I have a responsibility to reach people for Christ. Revival is the visible moving of God among a specific group of people in a specific place over an indefinite period of time, changing the lives of those people. And when God moves in that group of people, those people expect God to move. They make themselves available. They accomplish things they could not otherwise have accomplished. They promote unity and bring each other together and love one another in visible, active ways, and they reach other people for Christ. I love the Braves. I went to the Braves game last night. I'm going to the Braves game tomorrow night. I love the Braves. I'm not going to wear this because it messes up my hair. My love for the Braves is evident. But is my love for Jesus evident? Is it evident that I'm on fire for Christ? I'll tell you, that's more important than the Braves. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Create in us an expectant heart that you are going to do something in us. Develop in us an available spirit that says to you, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and I don't know where you're going to lead me, but I'm hoisting my sail and I am making myself available to you unconditionally. O oh Lord, use us 
to accomplish things that only you can accomplish. And help us to remember to give you the glory you deserve. Father, I pray that you would help us to actively love each other. We are a family. May people be amazed when they see us loving on each other. God, help us not to be ashamed to speak to our neighbors and friends and family and co-workers and fellow students about Jesus. God, I want to see, and we want to see the visible moving of God in this place. Lord, I pray that you would be free to move here in Jesus' name. Amen.